Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Charles Hudson, founder and managing partner of Precursor Ventures. And in this episode, we talk about raising a fund, his experience when he launched Precursor Ventures, what that took, how he found a white space in the market, investing at the earliest stages, and why he decided to focus in this particular area, the role of platform at a venture firm, his kind of unique opinions on that, the importance of storytelling for founders, and so much more in this episode. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here's Charles Hudson, Managing Partner at Precursor Ventures. Charles, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to come on today and excited to talk about a lot of different things, which is going to be fun. And I'm sure people have probably heard of Precursor, but there's bound to be a, a few that haven't. Can you give us a, just an overview of what Precursor Ventures is kind of focused on? I'm always happy to talk about what we do for a living and our strategy. So we're a five-year-old venture firm based here in San Francisco, and I started it with a really simple thesis. I felt like the world of seed financing five years ago was really headed in a direction where most of the capital was going to people who were either repeat entrepreneurs or people who were leaving kind of really well-known, well-established companies or companies that had traction. And yeah. I felt like there were a ton of entrepreneurs whose, whose needs just weren't being met. They were really talented, smart people. They just didn't have the evidence or traction that seed investors were looking for. And so there needed to be a round before seed to help you go from kind of zero to one. And that's what we do. So we'll back 25 or 30 teams a year with sort of 250K checks each time. And that's what we do. So we're a team of four. With that as well, then at that time, you know, understand that you saw this kind of gap in the marketplace and people weren't really investing in this pre-seed or super early stage. What was it about um, that situation in terms of just your conviction to go for it? Because a lot of people obviously weren't oh, doing yeah. it. How did you how did you get through that to just actually start this? Oh, well, <laughs> it's a really great question, Justin. So here's one one part of the story that I think is worth mentioning that I, I didn't include. Um, I was already a partner at another venture firm called Uncork, which used to be called SoftTech. And yeah. what I realized really quickly was as our fund got larger, there were entrepreneurs that would come in our office to pitch. And I was telling them, hey, you don't fit our model. You're too early. And I was like, well, if I'm seeing this situation and I'm in this business, shouldn't I know where to send these people? <laughs> like I, I do this for a living. If there were like obvious options, wouldn't I know them? And I was like, I don't know them. And that tells me that there's probably an opportunity to solve this problem by building a firm. And the other thing I'll say is it was very clear to me that the reason that people weren't doing that work wasn't that it doesn't need to be done, but the people who got their start had gotten so successful at venture that they'd raised bigger funds and they no longer needed to write these small checks. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I understand why they're not doing it. It's not because they don't think it's interesting. It's because the people that are players in that space, not like they don't have to be. With that as well, then, Charles, and I love going through you know, founder stories of whatever it be, whether it be a venture firm in this case, or a startup as well, understanding you knew that you wanted to start a fund then. How did you determine, you know, you knew it's obviously early stage, how big you wanted the, the first fund to be and take me through that process of raising your first fund? Yeah, so it's interesting. I actually didn't 
want to raise a fund. Like I was very resistant to the idea. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, at the time, there were probably seven or eight hundred small sub hundred million dollar venture funds running around. Um, I was like, is it really possible that there's any white space left with this many people out here chasing early stage venture capital company like opportunities? Is it possible? I was like, the numbers would suggest that there's no white space. And I was like, maybe somebody's doing this. So I spent a bunch of time poking around trying to figure out, well, who's actually doing this work? Somebody must be doing it. And I concluded like there were people who were nibbling at the edge who would like join around that was coming together. And there were people who would like occasionally come down market and write a check to a company like this, but nobody I felt like was making it their primary activity. And after a while, I was like, well, if no one's making it their primary activity and I want it to be mine, there is actually an opportunity. So I had to actually convince myself first <laughs> that like not only did the opportunity exist, but that I wanted to go after it. And then from that, you, I mean, convincing yourself to start with, I mean, that's that's huge because you did see that, okay, there actually is white space. And then raising, then you decided to raise a fund, but it must be tough to raise a first fund. How did you go through that? How did it go in terms of raising that first fund? How long did it take you? Well, I think um, a word that will resonate with you, I know, is grind. And <laughs> it was really a grind. And I was naive when I went to raise our first fund because I think I overestimated how much the fact that I'd been an existing venture capitalist on somebody else's platform, I overestimated how much mileage I would get out of that. And for a lot of people, they're like, hey, it's great. We know you from your previous work, but this thing you're talking about now is a brand new thing. So we're going to judge it on the merits of being a brand new thing, even yeah. though we know you. So it was a lot of, it was a cold start problem for me. And so it took almost two years and about 300 pitches. And I got to tell you, Justin, like the hardest thing was, you know, when you go pitch a startup, sometimes it takes you 30 or 40 meetings with investors to figure out what parts about the business that are obvious to me are not obvious to people across the table. Yeah. And how do I pitch my business and problem that we're trying to solve in a way that investors will get it? It probably took me a year to figure out that a lot of the limited partners I was pitching on Precursor, they didn't like the fact that we invested in so many companies so early. Yeah. And I had to come up with a rationale and an argument for why that was not, in fact, a crazy thing to do. At that time, how many companies were you investing in or planning and investing in per year then with Precursor? You know, the original thought was we would do 20 to 25 a year. And that felt, that felt healthy. Like to put it in perspective, when I was at Uncork with Jeff, Steph, and Andy, when I first got there, we probably did 15 or 20 companies a year in 2010. Yeah. Um, and now my guess is they probably do more like 10, 15 a year. So, so the, the laws of sort of gravity and venture, it's this weird paradox. Oftentimes the larger your fund at seed, actually the fewer companies you'll do because to return a lot of money, it's a lot easier if you own a big chunk of a winner company than it is to try to get a little bit of a lot of good companies. Yeah. And so a lot of LPs I talked to, limited partners, people who I was asking to invest in our fund, a lot of them just said, you know, 25 companies. And remember, it was just me. I didn't even have Sydney. I didn't have Ayana or Malcolm, anyone else on our team. It was just me. 
And a lot of people said, this is insanity. How is one person going to pick, evaluate, support, help, whatever words you want to use, 25 companies a year? It's too few people and too many companies. And I was like, well, you don't know me. <laughs> I think I can do it. <laughs> and it was a very hard, in retrospect, I'm like very grateful that there were people that were willing to go on this journey with me because the 2020 version of me would probably tell the 2015 version of me, you'll never raise a fund with these characteristics in terms of team size, number of companies. Like it just doesn't fit the box of what the people you're pitching are looking for. With that then, Charles, understanding that at that stage, you were going to make a lot more investments with just a small team then. But I want to go through then even growing your team for Precursor, because it's not just you there, as you mentioned. Take me through growing the team initially in the early days of Precursor. So it started off just me, and that actually felt manageable for the first year or so. I didn't have that many companies. There wasn't that much portfolio company support. It was honestly pretty manageable. Yeah. And then I started noticing that like I couldn't keep up with everything. Like we were having companies that we invested in that needed help. They were sending me reports and updates. I needed to have somewhere to put those. And I just felt like it was getting to be too much. So I pinged a handful of my investors and said, I think I need to bring someone on to help me, probably like an intern level person to just help me wrangle this stuff. If you have any ideas, you can send me one name and one name only. <laughs> don't want you to send me 50 people. Yeah. And it's okay if you don't have any names, but like max of one, min of zero. And Frida, Frida K. Poor Klein sent me an email and said, I know this woman from Berkeley. I think you should meet her. And uh, I met Sydney and we had a couple of meetings. And I'm sure her conclusion was this guy's barely holding this thing together. <laughs> and um, she decided to join us about four years ago. And I had a really specific spec. I was really looking for somebody who could join and be very happy helping me wrangle operations for a year. Like it wasn't designed to be an immediate investor track position because I sort of felt like the investing side of the firm worked fine but the operations side of the firm was in need of help. And I met a handful of people where I just didn't really believe that they were going to be happy with the, with the offer, which was, yeah. like, I need you to be focused on the app side. We will get to the investing side eventually because I know that's what people want to do. And I was really looking for somebody who would sign up for that. With that, obviously you found Sydney for that role, someone to help on the operations side, because that's what you needed the most at that time, especially. And we might as well jump to it now. Sydney was recently you know, promoted to principal. Take me through that decision and how you got to that that point and a little bit more of like the work she's done these last few years. I'd be really curious because for other people listening and potentially wanting to join venture and understanding you know, how they can add value to their firm, I'm curious as to how, how that's come about for Sydney. Yeah. you know, I, I think from the beginning, we've had this conversation about like, what is it take to move from operations to the investing side. And um, I just sort of wrote up a big document um, and Sydney and I w went through it and I said, look, these are all the skills I think you need to have to be kind of a, a principal or an investing person at the firm. You have to have your own venture network and she has her own very robust venture network. It's different than mine. 
I was like, you have to have demonstrated good judgment around picking companies. And like, that's something you can work on without writing checks. And for that, it's just sort of like, hey, if you find a company that you think is interesting, we should talk about it together and see if we can come to some shared sense of what a good company looks like. And she's really excelled there. Third, I was like, you have to have your own thesis on what you're looking for. And that can be different from what I'm looking for. And in fact, it should be different from what I'm looking for because I'm already looking for the things I'm looking for. We don't probably need <laughs> to be looking for the exact same kind of companies. Yeah. Um, fourth, there had to be someone who I felt like really reflected and embodied the values of our firm because I was like, I'm going to give you more leeway to speak and be on panels and represent the firm. And like, I really need to know that the people we're putting out there like reflect and embody our values. And uh, four, uh, fifth, I guess, is really honestly just comfort. And it's just yeah. like having spent enough time with someone to feel like they're ready. And so she, the number one thing she's always done that I think is like great career advice for anyone is she's always embraced whatever her responsibilities were at the time. So, you know, like one of the first projects she did was like getting us out of my inbox and into Airtable. Yeah. And that for, for some people that could be an exciting project for some people could be like, oh man, I don't want to do it. She really embraced it. Like, and she took it to a level that like exceeded what I thought was possible with the platform. And so that just gave me confidence that like, whatever I threw at her or asked her to do, she would come up with like a really great idea for it. She runs our quarterly retreats. So we do like a kind of an offsite every quarter where we we dive deep on some things that are internal, some things that are external. It's kind of a mix. She's really the person that like drives the agenda for that yeah. and also drives the agenda on follow-up. And like one of the things I realized really quickly about Sydney is like, she's a person when she's given a task, she takes it to completion without me needing to check up on it. She will like give it the appropriate level of attention to detail and she will complete it. And honestly, Justin, like completing things is a big deal. Yeah. Like <laughs> getting figure. like actually <laughs> getting things done and living up to your commitments is like really important. And it's something we talk about a lot as a firm. And so it took it took a while to for all of those pieces to fall in place because she came to us without a lot of venture experience or startup experience. Yeah. So I personally think going from limited startup experience to investing the firm's capital in four years, to me, that's fast. I recognize for people on uh, the other end of the this podcast, four years might not sound fast. To me, that's a really fast journey. Yeah. I mean, going from literally like basically zero to, to investor, yeah, that's it's incredibly fast. And one of the things I want to talk to about with precursor as well is just in terms of how you set this up. You're you're quoted somewhere saying like platform light of course of of sorts in terms of how you kind of run this. Did you know from the beginning that's how you want to have precursor be just a little lighter on the platform side of things? I did, and you know this is this is probably the one of the areas where I continue to get pushback from LPs, but like I refuse to back down. <laughs> I just have a really different view on this than others do. First of all, I look at how much time, energy, and resources first round has invested in their platform. Yeah. And I kind of feel like the only thing worse than no platform is a bad platform. 
True. <laughs> if you can't deliver on the referrals and the intros and the help and the advice, like you're actually doing your own firm a disservice by putting out a bad product. So Mike, if you're going to do a platform, you have to have the resources and commitment to make that investment. And first round does, and they have done an excellent job with that. I'd say Andreessen has also done an excellent job on the platform side. I had a different view. Um, I feel like as an investor, it's hard for me to say on the one hand, founders are the most important piece in the puzzle. And also, oh, you, you need all this stuff from us. <laughs> I guess I kind of felt like, you know, when I was a founder, and I've done this a couple of times, I was like, what did I need? First of all, I needed somebody who believed in me as a person. That was one. Two, I needed someone I trusted enough that I could go to them when things weren't going well. Third, I needed that person to tell me the truth when I was screwing up. And four, I needed that person to be able to make some key intros and help me with things where they had they could provide leverage. I'd argue you can do all of those things without a platform. You can do those with a personal relationship with the founder. Yeah. And so what I said is like in a world where everybody else wants to like do stuff for founders, I actually want to like do fewer things, but do them better. Like I want to help them fundraise. It turns out when you run a venture firm with 200 plus companies, I think we're good at helping people fundraise. <laughs> we have a lot of relationships in the ecosystem because we have a large portfolio. Every quarter I get a front row seat at 20 to 30 fundraising processes. And I get to see what's working, what isn't traction wise, deck wise, blurb wise, presentation wise, amount the money you ask for wise. I think we can make a huge difference in people's fundraising. And if you really zoom out, like raising money for the kind of founders that we're going after, many of whom are doing it for the first time, helping them raise money is actually a big deal. It's like actually quite important. So if you can combine like tactical ability to help with fundraising, plus a real focus on the individual and the founder as a leader and a, and a whole human being, and you can get to know them and spend time with them and like get them to trust you by like doing what you said you would do and being available. I'd argue it's not that useful for me to sit down at a whiteboard and look at wireframes and envision with somebody. Like, shouldn't they be good at that? Like, isn't that like the founder's job? That's kind of what they're doing. I have, like, role, yeah. I have this like allergy, Justin, to like encroaching on things that I think are really operational. And what it means is like, I'm okay with people struggling with with problems or situations that are hard because they're hard. Yeah. And what I really want people to do is to have the same confidence in themselves that I have in them. So sometimes people bring me problems and I'm just like, you know, I have an opinion on this, but I kind of think you should solve this. Like, it's up to you. And like, I trust that you're going to make a good decision here. I'm happy to be a thought partner. I'm happy to like be a sounding board, but this is really a decision only you can make. I can give you some input, but I can't really, I mean, I could, but I like choose not to tell you what to do. <laughs> and so like my general view is like our job as investors is to like supplement founders in those areas where we can be helpful. And I think fundraising and like strategy are two big ones, but also to give founders like room to grow and blossom in the areas where like we could help, but it's probably better for them to like build the muscle. Yeah, it'll only be helpful for them as they're moving forward. It's also one of those things where I think about it from a perspective of 
you know, the founder has all the details about the day to day being in the company and everything. So in terms of making decisions, yeah, it may be difficult and they can get input from you as an investor, but they have all the data themselves. Um, it's like make the decision, <laughs> you know, and get the, get some feedback for sure. Cause you have obviously a, a different, uh, view or skill set. but at the end of the day, it's like their company. And one of the things you mentioned though, about kind of the fundraising, getting all these insights because you have so many companies in a portfolio and maybe Sydney's part of this as well, but how do you organize all those insights, takeaways and, you know, what's yeah. working? Is that just, I'm curious to know more about that. It's a constant evolution. So, and I would say there's like, it's two dimensional. So one is what do we do with our portfolio company insights? And thank God we have Ayana and Malcolm. <laughs> Because you can imagine we have 200 and let's call it 225 plus or yeah. minus 10 companies in the portfolio. And about two thirds of them send us a written update at least once a quarter. Oof. So, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> so we have a ton of data in Airtable about not just the present of these companies, but the history. Yep. And so what we've started, what I've started doing is having Ayana and Malcolm dive into that data and do reports. And it's not just like, show me all the data. I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. Right now we're doing kind of a deep dive on our business to business SaaS companies and the amount of money it takes for them to raise, to get to series A. Abstracting away the number of rounds. Like what, how much money, it turns out it's actually a lot more money than I had realized in this environment to yeah. get to a series A. And we can do that. And I'll tell you, I'll give you one like really insight that changed the way I invest. About 10% of our portfolio companies are hardware companies. Across the board for a successful hardware company, it seems to take somewhere between six and a half and seven and a half million dollars uh, to get the product out and get enough data to know whether it's working. It's kind of a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so the odds of you like getting there, if someone tells me like, hey, we're going to raise a $2 million seed round to launch our product and it's hardware, I'm like, based on what I've seen across 15 or 20 companies, that's unlikely to be what happens for you. Yeah. It's just like, it just is. And so part of like our job is to like extract insights out of the data that the founders give us and roll that up to something that's like actionable for them. The flip side is I learn a lot from our portfolio company founders. And I've this year been much more diligent about writing these things down for our team to understand about how do you have a conversation with the founder if you think the burn rate's too high? How do you have a conversation with the founder? If a founder tells you that sales isn't working, like what does that really mean? Yeah. How do we think about that? Like I just wrote something internally. A lot of our portfolio companies come to me, oh, we're getting all this inbound interest about our next round. I'm like, or maybe you're just getting cold outreach. <laughs> like they're not actually the same. So I wrote a thing <clears throat> that I've shared with a few of our portfolio company founders about like, how do you determine the difference between cold outreach and genuine inbound interest? Because I've met a lot of founders lately who've gotten an email from a partner at a big venture firm and scrambled to put together a fundraise on the belief that that email was indicative of like, strong interest. And I don't want people to waste their time on that. So the other nice thing is with the big portfolio, the returns to writing this stuff down and making it shareable is very, very high. Yeah, way more people see it then at that point. Mm -hmm. And it's easier for me to share with the people. 
people on our team who are still coming up, coming up the curve uh, as investors. With that experience as well, Charles, I mean, I would love to hear anything you, you have on advice for founders that are really early stage and maybe raising their first rounds of capital with, you know, with obviously that's where you invest at typically. Um, any advice on that for founders in terms of telling their story or in terms of, uh, you know, how they position themselves, anything around just with your insights of investing for a number of years? I think people spend too much time on the quantitative part of their pitch and not enough time on the qualitative part, kind of across the board. And what I mean by that is I meet so many founders who want to tell me about how much traction they have with the business. And I understand why traction is important. Please don't take this to mean that like, I don't care about traction. <laughs> but like for me, I'll give you like a tale of two, two companies. Company A is doing $10,000 a month in revenue but I think the ceiling for that business is $5 million a year. Company B is doing $0 in revenue, but I think the ceiling for that company is $100 million in revenue in three years. I'd rather spend time with company B. Yeah. And so I think what sometimes gets lost is storytelling is a big part of this. And everyone's like, what does storytelling mean? I'm like, you got to be able to paint a compelling vision of the future for your company. And what the world's going to look like in three to five years. And I tell everyone, like, for me, the test of a good pitch is, like, is it memorable? Like, can I remember the basic outline of what you're doing? Is it simple? And could I explain what the company does without you in the room? And is it interesting? You got to have those three things. And many times I'll ask founders who pitch me. I'm like, I think if, if I had taken 30 more pitches and I had to tell someone what you're doing next week in a partner meeting, I think it fails that test. Mm. And oftentimes it's because it's too complicated. And I'm sure you see this. I mean, you talk to lots of entrepreneurs. The better you understand what you're doing, the simpler you can describe it. <laughs> and I will say this. I really think Y Combinator does an excellent job at distilling, getting companies to really distill what they do down to something that's simple and easy to understand in like under 45 seconds. And it sounds really simple. It's incredibly difficult to do. Yeah. But it's essential as a founder to get to that point because most, I think most pitches are won and lost in the first five minutes. You either like anchor the person on the other side of that zoom or the other side of the phone in what you're doing and why it's interesting really quickly. And you grab their attention and you give them what they need to understand the problem you're trying to solve, or after five or six minutes of like flailing around and trying to figure it out, most people just give up. Doesn't mean they're gonna end the call early, doesn't yeah. mean they're gonna like hop off the line, but they're gonna check out. It is funny you mentioned that in terms of the number of different pitches you hear and how people describe their companies. I love to have the context around people's companies in the beginning of the, every episode. And I've interviewed people from, you know, pre-seed all the way through like, you know, series B and beyond. And people who are more experienced around that, they can be way more concise and clear around their company and what it actually does. And it is a difference when some of these uh, guests I've had on even, it's they take a lot more time with describing what they actually do in their company. Uh, and to your, that's exa exactly to your point of this, of being able to do that is important, especially as you're fundraising. And you mentioned it a little bit, but in terms of evaluating early stage founders, and uh, you've 
invested in many of you who are maybe have a prototype or just super early. What are some more of those questions you're asking to really get to know the founder themselves? Because that's really what you're investing in at that point. You know, I think most of these companies that we invest in, they really come down. I mean, there's obviously a lot of things that have to go right. Most of them, though, they come down to like one thing that has to be true. Like if it's a subscription service, it might be that like, hey, people are going to stick around with this service long enough for the business model to work. Yeah. And I just feel like my general view is, you know, once I give an, a company money and we make an investment, like my general belief is they're going to do whatever they think the right thing is. And I'm going to have like limited control after we invest. It's their company. Like they're going to run it. So it's the most important thing is not to convince them that I'm right about these topics. It's to make sure that we're focused on the same thing. So most of what I'm looking for is like, do the does the founder believe the most important thing about the business is the same thing that I think the most important thing is about the business? And a lot of times when I say no, it might be that I think distribution is going to be really hard and it's going to be the big thing that they have to solve for and the founder is only worried about product. Hmm. Or it could be that like, I think customer willingness to pay is substantially lower than the founder does and the founder's not at all concerned about that as an issue which doesn't mean i'm right it just means we're not going to have a terribly productive relationship if i'm pushing them on this thing that i care about and they're like i'm not interested in talking about that because i don't think it's an issue one of the things that you i think you had tweeted about recently which i wanted to, i wanted to actually ask about is you tweeted about something about fund size assets under management and then kind of kind of brand and it's all kind of working together how do you look at brand for precursor oh man it's it's a big question i think to me brand is like what who do we want to attract who do i want to wake up in the morning and say i'm starting a company i have to go talk to precursor and i think i want us to be a couple of things one is approachable which is you feel like you can come to us when you have like a raw idea and like not get criticized for it. Uh, one that's like harder, that's becoming harder to manage. One is accessible, which is you can actually get in front of somebody at Precursor. <laughs> yeah. Which is becoming a, a bit more challenging lately <laughs> as, as the portfolio has grown and, and my responsibilities have grown. I want us to be a brand that will affirm that will tell you the truth about what we think about your business. I also want us to be a firm that's kind. And I tell our team all the time that like, you can be kind and honest at the same time. And I actually think one without the other to me is bad. Because kindness without honesty is kind of like sugarcoating it and lying to founders. It's not helpful. And I think honesty without kindness lacks like the human touch. And so I just this morning talked to a founder and he asked me a question and he said, Hey, you always have shot straight with me. So I'm asking you this because I want the honest answer. And I said, well, I'm going to give you the honest answer <laughs> and here it is. And here's why. And so I always, I think if we can succeed at being approachable, accessible, kind, and, and honest, we will attract the kind of founders for whom 
our money would make a difference, which is mostly people, like I tell everyone, our canonical founder is, you know, a lot of the people we've backed, they're mid-level executive people. So think senior manager or director at a startup. They probably have never raised money. They probably never managed a whole bunch of people, never built a big team, but they've got a really good idea. And my belief is that like all the things they haven't done, like we kind of know how to help them come up the curve. Like the best way to learn how to hire people is like to actually have to hire people. <laughs> like it's funny how like, yeah, go for I, tell our, I tell my investors this all the time. They're like, how do you assess these people? I'm like, well, we have to make a judgment about whether we think they will grow into the role. And I think like ne the necessity of things, like you've interviewed Iman from Incredible Health, like she rose to the occasion with that company and like yeah. grew into someone who was capable of doing a lot of things that she hadn't done before. And she's done many of them extraordinarily well. And at heart, I'm an optimist. So my belief, that's one of our firm values is optimism and that we can have an impact on the world and make it a better place, which I know sounds cheesy, but it's true. And I think if you're true, an optimist, yeah. when you meet somebody who hasn't done it before, my belief is like, well, this person probably can do it, but no one's given them the chance. And so like, if we give them the chance, and this is where the like emotional support and like availability piece, if we give them some help and support and give them some guardrails, so we're not going to let them get themselves into too much trouble. Like we'll stop them from sort of driving the car off the edge of the cliff. They'll grow. Now growth isn't linear. They'll do some things well, they'll do some things poorly. They'll get better at some things. But I think like, that's a very like, positive way to think about people. So I'm very comfortable saying like the person I invested in day one will look and feel very different than the person I'm working with a year from now. They will have grown and learned and be capable of doing things that they can't do yet. And so I'm always like tickled when people say, oh, I'm really worried about this founder's ability to hire. Do you think she can hire? I'm like, well, she's never hired anybody before. We don't, we actually literally don't know. Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> so like, if you're gonna say you're worried that, that she can't hire, you're basically assuming that she's not capable of this task. Whereas I'm just kind of like, I think she probably can't hire. And if she can't hire, I will introduce her to someone in our portfolio who's really good at recruiting and maybe that person can help her level up. And so I think if you approach the world in this job with like a fundamentally optimistic worldview, and when you're investing in people that for the most part don't have a ton of startup founder experience, it's easy to be optimistic. Now, the one caveat is for repeat people who've done it before, I do think it's worthwhile to look at the takeaways from their previous ventures. Because like that is data, I think it's like kind of silly to ignore. Yeah, you'd have to look at that. If, if they have a track record of some sort, I mean, why wouldn't yeah, you? you want to know. And we've invested in people whose previous companies did not work out. And three, the question is always like, what did that founder learn from that experience? What did they take away? What was the insight? What did the, can they speak honestly about their role in the company's failure? Like what they could have done differently or what, what they didn't get right. That to me matters more. The ability to do that matters to me more even than the answer. Yeah. And one thing I just want to take a gigantic leap back. <laughs> you, you were an entrepreneur. You obviously have done investing then for the last number of years. Why investing for you? Why did you want to get into venture capital? 
Oh man. Um, being a startup founder is definitely a much harder job. And I'd run a couple of companies and I think the challenge with being a startup founder is it never gets easier. It just gets different. Like in the beginning, you don't have any employees and you're struggling to get people to work and you're struggling to get product. You don't have any customers. And then you have employees and then your employees have like issues and problems and challenges and they need your time. And then once you have customers, the customers have problems and complaints. (laughs) And I just, if I was honest with myself, I was like the startup founder journey of building companies is an incredibly difficult emotional journey to go on. And I had reached a point in my life where I was like, I think I want to do something different. I don't think I want to be on that treadmill. And I know that like, it takes a level of commitment and discipline to do that. And I was like, I just don't want to, I think I'd be happier as an investor. And I was at a point in my life where I was like, I think I just get more joy out of being a small part of a lot of other people's success and like helping them out than I do in being the person who's building the thing or running the company. Now, the irony is that like starting a venture fund is kind of like starting a startup. All right. (laughs) And it's a lot slower. Um, But it was honestly, a lot of it was like just stage of life. I was like late thirties and I was thinking about like, what do I want the next 10 to 15 years of my life to be like? Do I want to be building or do I want to be helping other people build? And the like helping other people build just felt more attractive. It's funny, I interviewed Carl Almar from M13, and he mentioned something very similar on that. Going from startups to investing is like you reach a point in your life and it's different and your kind of priorities change and it shifts into, I think I want to invest instead, (laughs) which is uh, a different route to go. I want to know, uh, just to dive a little bit deeper into that, on that decision, how much time did that that take? What were some of the questions you were asking yourself or things you were thinking about along the way to, to pivot from startups into VC? I can tell you the moment where I was pretty sure I was done operating. Um, I had a portfolio company where I stepped in as interim CEO for about six months. It was without question the hardest job I've ever had. And also the point in my career where I felt the least capable of like doing what I was like asked to do. And running the company. Um, and it was hard because it was a company that was going through a pretty big transition. And every every Friday I went home, I was like, man, that was a really hard week. I somehow got through it. But like, I'm legitimately concerned <laughs> about opening the doors on Monday. <laughs> yeah. Based on all of the baggage I'm taking home with me about this week. And knowing how many people on the team were struggling. And just knowing how the business was struggling. I did that for six months while I was also trying to raise my fund. And I have to say that, like, it just reminded me how hard it is to build and lead teams. And I was like, what I'm going through right now, this is the job. This is like a hard version of the job, but this is the job. Like as CEO, like you end up with all the problems that everyone else can't solve. They bring them to you. It's your job to like deal with them. And I just remember the overwhelming feeling of dread I had at the end of every Friday when I was running that company, because 
the end of the, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I tend to find as a manager, Friday end of the day is when everybody drops the really big stuff in your lap as they're walking out the door. <laughs> they want to yeah. unburden themselves. I don't blame anyone. Have a good sure, sure. And I'd have people swing by my office. Hey, do you have a second to catch up? I'm like, oh god, it's four thirty on Friday. We're about to have happy hour. But yeah, you know, I'm mulling this over. Me and my manager aren't getting along. I'm not sure I want to stay. Can we book some time on Monday to talk about this? I'm like, sure. Yeah. Now I'm like, great. All weekend I'm gonna be like, oh god, like. <laughs> can I save this person? Are they going to stay? And I just would come home Friday feeling like I'm so screwed. <laughs> we have so many problems with this company and I only know how to solve half. Now, thankfully we had a great management team and many of them stepped up, but it was a real reminder that like, that is the job of a startup founder. It is like constant problem solving and the bigger and more complicated the company the more complex the challenges get. And I was just like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I think I want to help other people get good at doing this. And I want to be, I want to provide them with leverage. And I think I would be happier. And I was just honest, I was like, this part of the job, the like building a team, keeping the team functional, keeping the company running, keeping your investors in the loop, that stuff never goes away. That is like the job. Yeah. And if you're going to be a founder, you have to, relish embrace that part of the job and i was like i if i'm honest with myself i don't i don't want to do that anymore and it was hard because the previous startup i'd run the games company it was not what i would classify as a success like we were able to like sell the intellectual property but i wouldn't classify that as a success and a part of me really didn't want to go out with an l like a part yeah. of me was like, I, I want to go out with like ticker tape victory parade. I want to go out saying like, I had a super successful company. That's what I want. And I'm like, I'm not going to get that if I go become an investor. So I had to like sit with that for a little while and just say the, the last few grades on my entrepreneur report card are not going to be A's. And like, it's dumb though, to go start a company for ego reasons that you want to leave on top. I'm like, that's a bad reason to start a company. Yeah. Not great. Yeah. Not, not, not a, a great, great, not a great motivation. And so I just decided, I was like, I'm going to make precursor like the last thing I work on and I'm going to make it awesome because if I make it awesome, we'll help a lot of other people achieve like their dreams yeah. and we'll, we'll do well financially too. But like I can have a lot of impact. On that note then, uh, what I'm curious about is then, as an investor, you've been an investor, precursor started in 2015, you're an investor before then as well. Obviously doing the job itself, you learn from the process, but how do you invest in yourself as uh, as an investor in terms of making yourself better and you know getting better at at the job you do? I'm curious as to that, especially for other oh. you know investors out there as well. Like how have you improved upon what you're doing? Um, so I have a coach that I work with every week and um, a lot of what we talk about is communication, honestly. Um, we spend a lot of time talking about communication, both with my own team and with the founders that we've backed and with the founders that we haven't backed. So a lot of times I have an idea about a message I want to deliver or a conversation I want to have. And a lot of times I'll talk to him about it first. 
and just say, here's what I'm thinking. And sometimes he's like, that's pretty good. Here's how you can improve it. Other times he's like, hey, I think if you handle that situation in that way, here's what I think is likely to happen. And it's really helped me, I think, improve my ability to communicate with people and like um, be more effective. The other thing is with a lot of companies, as you can imagine, the returns to precursor for building things into systems are exceedingly high. So there's lots of things that I do in consultation with him that it's like, hey, I have this, like I'll give you one really practical uh, example. Yeah. We have an on, we have a portfolio company onboarding process that used to be very haphazard. It relied a lot on me remembering to do a bunch of things. And he's like, well, look, if you want everyone to have a good onboarding experience, we have to like make this more systematic. It can't be just like relying on you remembering to do these things. Like how can we make this, how can you make sure everybody gets the same experience? They get the same emails from you at roughly the same cadence that you want. And like, we spent a lot of time putting together an onboarding sequence that I think works really well in introducing people to the precursor. And that was something that I, not only did I build it once, every quarter I go back and look at every email in that sequence and I change it. Sometimes I change the order. I'm about to add a new one in um, that's about a topic that's come up a lot in my conversations with founders and I'm like, hey, I need to like share this thought with people because I think it's important. So I think for me, having having somebody who pushes me to be better and who like pushes me to think systematically about a lot of the things I want to do has been incredibly helpful. So that's like a big investment I've made in making myself better. I think the other thing is like, you have to honestly be open to feedback. Yeah. I think every investor I know thinks they're open to feedback, but the truth is the power dynamic between investors and founders is like such that there's not a really strong incentive for your portfolio company to tell you that you're doing a bad job at your job. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> but I have our portfolio company founders will tell me sometimes like, Hey, like I noticed you've been less responsive lately than you normally are. And like, I need them to do that for me. Yeah. But I also need them to feel that like, my answer isn't going to be, well, I've been really busy. You need to understand. No, like that's not the right response. The right <laughs> response is like, well, thank you for letting me know. I need to do better. And so a lot of it is also like convincing the people that we work, we work and people on my team too, like Ayana and, and Malcolm and Sydney, convincing them that like, A, I really want to hear when we're not doing a good job and B, like there are no negative consequences to you for sharing that with me. And most people don't believe you the first time you say that. Like, like you have okay. to actually like, <laughs> convince them that it's true. Yeah. And the only way to convince them it's true, like they're going to probably test you a little bit. And they'll try, usually they'll test you with something small. Yeah. They'll give you a small piece of feedback and see how you deal with it. <clears throat> and so like, I think my biggest fear is that like, nobody will tell me the truth that like we'll think we're doing a great job and everyone else. So we do we do an annual NPS survey with our founders. Um, and every year something comes out of there that we change. Every single year. Somebody points something like, hey, stop doing this or do more of this or why aren't you doing this? Every single year we get really valuable and useful feedback from our portfolio company founders. Charles, this has been great. Uh, we're almost out of time here. So where can people go to learn more about Precursor and connect with you? What's the best way and where can they go? 
Um, our website's a great place to go, precursorvc.com. I mostly hang out on Twitter. That's probably like the easiest place to find me. I'm just at C Hudson and we're at precursorvc on Twitter. And you can always just email me too. I'm just Charles at precursorvc.com. Charles, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Awesome. Hey, I really appreciate you giving me an opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.